during the lesson, I said, well, I probably need to be standing. It'd probably be less convenient if I sat down to teach. Although, interestingly, in uh, the first century in the synagogue, they did sit down to teach rather than standing. Although, I suppose, you know, maybe if I sat up here, we could do it. But then I'm too far away from the podium. We'd have to reorganize everything. Last week, in this one-word study, we begin really by looking at God's plan for organization in the church, and we're going to begin with the same passage we started with last week in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, because this is just a succinct summary of God's plan for church organization. Paul addresses it, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So remember the different groups we have mentioned here, saints, holy ones, that's all of us. We might not think of ourselves that way, but that's a term Paul uses frequently. And we're talking here not about some superior class of Christians, we're all the saints. Overseers, or bishops, your translation may say, we looked at that term last week. That group of men who's also referred to in different passages as shepherds or pastors, uh, most frequently referred to as elders, and that's the term we typically use. But these are men of of wisdom and of experience who are in charge of uh, watching over and guiding the local congregation. But then in this verse, we also have deacons. Deacons. This is a word study. And that is a strange word. That's not a word that we use in any context outside of church as far as I can think of. I was racking my brain. The only other place I can think of a deacon is the mascot at Wake Forest University, the demon deacons. And the reason that that's their mascot is it was originally a Baptist university. I can't think of any other time in life outside church where we use the term deacon. So what in the world does this word mean? Well, deacon seems to be a foreign term to us because quite literally, it is one. Like some other words that we see in Scripture, baptism is the best example. This isn't a translation. This is a transliteration. That is, we've just taken the word in the Greek and we've converted those Greek letters into English letters, and we just bring it wholesale into English. So the Greek term is diakonos. So what does that mean if we're talking about a translation? This is a servant or a helper. It's someone who sees to the needs of others. Uh, It was used of intermediaries in particular in transactions. It was used of agents. Uh, It was frequently used for, for couriers, someone who's delivering a message to someone else. And when we see that, and this is where it gets a little bit messy when we're talking about deacon and what does this word mean, this uh, diakonos, and if we're talking about the whole family of words, because it's not just a noun, sometimes it's used as a verb, sometimes it's used in, in different ways. We actually find this family of words, this diakon family, used in a variety of different ways in Scripture, but it's easy for us to miss that. Because instead of being transliterated as deacon, like it is here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, or like it is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8, where we see those qualifications of a deacon, 
it's usually translated as servant or minister. So probably this same word is being used frequently in texts that we don't even realize it's present in. So just to demonstrate a few ways that it's used in the New Testament, uh, that association with carrying messages that was one of the uses of uh, diakonos in the ancient world. Well, we see that associated in particular with dispensing the word of God, carrying God's message. So it's used that way frequently. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, for example, Paul's talking about his preaching. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, that's the word, servants, ministers, your translation may say, but if we just transliterated it, deacons, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says of this gospel, I was made a minister, same word, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says, I became a minister, there's the word, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So sometimes it's used of a minister or a servant who brings the word of God, who preaches. Ancient usage also used it in a second category for people who were commissioned to perform a particular service. So someone who does something for someone else and is given a, a specific charge to go and carry out. And the New Testament uses it this way too, especially where travel is involved. So someone who's sent somewhere else to do something. Uh, Acts chapter 12 verse 25, Luke uses it this way. He says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. So it doesn't describe them as servants, but that's the same family of words. They'd completed their deaconing, if you wanted to use it that way, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Uh, Paul asks for prayers from the church in Rome that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Romans chapter 15 and verse 31. This same word could also be used for essentially waiters, people who were serving on a table in a household. Uh, Jesus uses it this way, Luke chapter 22, verse 27. Who is greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? There's the word. It's not the one, is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. It's used this way also in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, a text we'll come back to in a few moments. The twelve, and that is the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, there's the word, to serve tables. This isn't exhaustive, not even of these categories, and there are other categories. The, the point I want to make is that the function of a diakonos, just that word generally, could vary greatly depending on how it's used, who it's applied to, the type of service it's being described. And so the New Testament uh, applies it to a number of different persons and services. It's used of waiters in the text we just saw in a, another place in John chapter 2. It's used of civil magistrates when Paul talks about the governing authorities being God's servants, Romans chapter 13 verse 4. 
This is the word that he uses. It's used of evangelist, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. It's used of missionaries, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul uses it more generally of his co-workers in a number of places. It's used of the apostles, Mark chapter 9, verse 45, and chapter 10, verse 43. It's even used of Christ himself, Romans chapter 15, verse 8. So I point all that out because this word deacon that seems pretty strange to us in a more general sense is actually used a lot in Scripture. The context, though, has to determine what sort of servant and what sort of service we're describing. The difference in the way that this is translated all has to do with the type of service that's rendered and for whom it's being rendered. So that brings us to this question. I think it's around 30, it's more than 30 times that this word is used just as a noun and translated as either servant or minister. Why is it translated that way on the bulk of occasions and then on just a few, four at most, depending on the translation, is it translated as deacon? Well, it came to be used this way in a technical sense for a special group of functionaries or office holders in the church. And that's what we see reflected here in Philippians 1 verse 1, the overseers and the deacons. This, this give, gives rise to distinguish this group from that generic usage of servant or minister. This gives rise to that official technical usage of the term deacon. But that usage is actually really rare compared to that broad usage. As I said, 30 plus times, not to mention all the times it's used as a, a verb or used as other parts of speech compared to just at most four usages uh, of deacon. The most prominent ones being here in Philippians 1 verse 1 and then in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we see those qualifications. We'll get to those in, in just a moment. Because there is that distinct class, those qualifications, and we could look at that actually now. In 1 Timothy 3, we looked at this for overseers last week, but beginning there in verse number 8, he says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, etc. He talks about them serving well as deacons down in verse number 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have some requirements laid out for this group of individuals. And so that indicates to us that when we're talking about deacons, it's translated this way because we're talking about a special, distinct group of functionaries in the church as opposed to someone just rendering service more generally. But even though we have this list of qualifications, which indicates to us, all right, this is an important job, a distinctly special class of servants, we don't have a lot spelled out about what the work of a deacon is. You think about last week, we have a good bit of information about the work of an elder. We spent the bulk of our time talking about that. We usually talk about their qualifications, but even in the terms that are used for elders, there's descriptions of the job. And you can see them talked about in terms of what they're to do in a number of different places. We don't have anything like that for deacons compared to elders. So the question really is, all right, we can see that there's this class of individuals. Yes, there's qualifications. We're talking about a distinct group of people. What can we say about their work? 
Well, I think there's a clue there in Philippians 1, verse 1, where we begin this evening. And you can actually see it here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 also. You notice what word deacon is paired with? It's overseer. The overseers are the bishops and the deacons in Philippians 1, verse 1. Here in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or bishop, he he desires a noble task. He refers to them as overseers frequently there. And then we have the deacons down in verse number 8. So you think about the other terms that are used. Elder. The natural counterpart of elder would be younger. But if we're talking about overseer, or like we said last week, essentially boss, foreman, supervisor, what's the natural counterpart to that? Servant. Manager, overseer, and servant, those two things go together. And so that suggests to us right there, inherent in that terminology that's used, that these are sort of assistants, those who are serving under the supervision of the elders. After all, everyone who's in some trusted position of responsibility needs subordinates, needs people that they can count on to to delegate some tasks and to hopefully go and to carry out what it is they want done. Now, sometimes people have distinguished the role of the elder and the deacon by saying that the elders are primarily responsible for spiritual matters and deacons are primarily responsible for temporal matters, earthly matters. And that's based from Acts chapter 6, where we have the seven who were appointed here to serve on those tables in the church in Jerusalem. I mentioned this earlier. I think this is helpful to understanding the work of a deacon as long as we don't take this too far and make those rigid distinctions. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But here in Acts chapter 6, if you remember this story, there are these Greek-speaking Jewish Christians in the church. And the majority of the church is Aramaic-speaking, Hebrew Christians. That's what all the apostles are. And so some of these come to the apostles and they say that they feel that their widows, their community, these Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, they're being ignored in the daily distribution. And that's what causes the 12 to appoint these seven men to go and to see to it, to make sure that these widows are taken care of properly. Now, I want you to note this. A lot of people see in here a model for deacons, and I don't think that that's wrong. But I would caution us in that the word deacon is not actually ever used in this chapter. So we don't want to state anything uh, too presumptuously here. Uh, The word serve as a verb is used in chapter 6, verse 2. That's that word deacon. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So that's the word to be a deacon. But remember, most of the uses of this are generic. They're not talking about that specific office. But these men here are chosen by the church to do a specific job. They have a task. And they do have qualifications, don't they? If you remember anything about this story, pick out from among you, Acts 6 verse 3, seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So there's qualifications, and they're given a job to do, to see to the needs of these widows. So I think even if we don't want to press this too far as these being deacons in an official sense per se, what we can say is that this story gives us an important principle for distinguishing between different functions here 
in the church, in ministry. The apostles say here that it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables there in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. The apostles weren't too good to serve tables. That's not that they thought that this was beneath them, that this was work that they couldn't possibly do. After all, Jesus had done that same sort of thing himself, right? I mentioned that just a few moments ago in Luke chapter 22. But the point is, why should they leave off doing something that only they could do, only they could be witnesses to Jesus in that special sense? To go and to do something that other people could do just as well as they could, or perhaps even better. If you notice, all of these men who are chosen, they're listed, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, it might not jump out to you, but these are all Greek names. So in other words, these are people out of that Greek-speaking community as opposed to the Aramaic-speaking apostles. These men were probably better suited to do that job of waiting on those widows than the apostles were, whereas they had a unique job that only they could do. So we see these functions split up according to the respective gifts or abilities that the men had. So this gives us that principle that a division of labor, according to your abilities, according to your qualifications, well, well that's a good thing. And according to this, this is why we see, if you go back and you study church history from the, the second century, the third century, that you have this group of individuals referred to as deacons who did things precisely like this. They're described as going and ministering to the needy, uh, to the poor, to the sick. They took care of church property. They assisted at the worship services. And if you think about it, that's really similar to what most of the time we find deacons doing today, isn't it? Helping to uh, oversee maintenance at the church facilities. Deacons do a lot of that. I've seen Philip in here, you know, putting up light bulbs, things like that. Uh, ushering people, helping to make sure that services run smoothly, make sure that everyone who's supposed to be here and taking part in public worship is here and accounted for, or otherwise finding someone to fill in, very similar to what was done in the ancient church. Helping to see to the poor and the sick and the needy in the church. So yeah, that sort of temporal work that we see in Acts chapter 6, I, I do think that that is primarily the work of the deacon. But I do want to stress we shouldn't overdraw this sort of distinction because deacons were servants in every aspect of the church's life in the ancient world. And you can see that even here with these seven. Two of these guys that are named here, Stephen and Philip, what do we find them doing pretty soon? They're preaching. <laughs> Stephen goes here. He's the first Christian martyr because his preaching is so bold. Philip goes and he converts a big group of people up in Samaria, and then he goes and he converts the Ethiopian eunuch. So in other words, these aren't, these aren't hard and fast lines here. There's not an exclusive division of labor in the church. You would, should expect to find a deacon teaching people on some occasions. And by the same token, you should probably expect the elders or you should expect the preacher to not spend all their time uh, shepherding or spend all their time teaching. You would expect to find them engaged in some benevolent work that's primarily the duty of the deacons. But even with all of that said, some persons need to be given those leadership roles 
in the benevolent, in the temporal, in those related categories. And that's so others can devote themselves to that pastoral work that we talked about last week. Or others can devote themselves to that teaching ministry that's another important component of the work of the church. And here's the big takeaway. Here's what I want us to remember to take home about deacons, because I don't think we talk about their work too much. But when we do, or when we think about it, we think about it as this temporal work, and I think a lot of times there is this tendency to view it as secondary. They're sort of second-class officers in the church. They have a, a job that's less important than the elders or the preacher or whoever, you know, because the preacher, he's out here, he's front, he's the, the public face of the church. He's always out here instructing, preaching, teaching classes. The elders, we know that they're uh, overseeing things as we talked about last week. They're the ones who are the real, the final decision makers. And the deacons only have this serving function. They're, they're assistants. Service is spoken of as a spiritual gift. Did you realize that? Service is a spiritual gift, and not everyone is necessarily gifted that way. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter says, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 12, Paul has this lengthy list of gifts of grace. And among those gifts, he includes the gift of service, something that we would consider to be pretty mundane. But Paul says that's a gift that God gives people to be able to carry out. More to the point, Jesus himself is described as a servant. I mentioned this already, Romans 15, verse 8. But he himself summed up his work primarily as a servant Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he talks about why he came into the world, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you ask Jesus, why did you come to the world? I came to be a servant. That's how he describes it. His life was preeminently one of going around doing good. That's how Peter sums it up, Acts chapter 10, verse 38. That benevolent work of Jesus continues in the church. That's one of the things the church does. We're his hands and feet. We continue to carry out that doing good to people. And when we're doing that good, it's represented especially by the deacons. That means that deacons emulate Jesus in a very real and very deep sense. And I want to ask us, do we recognize the importance of that work? just how serious that is? Or do we treat it as just sort of a, an errand boy position? Because I think that's the way we, we think about it a lot of times, whether we would say that or whether we consciously think of it that way, I, I think that's the way we sort of treat it. Deacons should realize just how important their duties are. They need to take their responsibilities seriously realize that we have these qualifications given. The very first one is that they're to be grave, they're to be serious, sober-minded. Because this is such a solemn responsibility, and it's not something that they should consider to be optional, not something that we should do only when it's convenient. No, it's something that's very important. Those qualifications underline that. Elders 
should see deacons as important functionaries. I've seen some elderships, and I'm not accusing this one of that, but I've seen some, and you probably have too, that uh, only give deacons work that you know any 15-year-old boy could probably do. But in fact, what we see here is that the deacons have these qualities because they have very serious, important work to do. The elders should delegate to them, appoint them over a ministry, trust that they're going to be able to go and to carry that out. And the church should value them. We should recognize that this is an important role. We should appreciate the work that they do. And, you know, we might think of ways that we can let them know that we appreciate that work that we do. The big point is when we go through and study the work of a deacon, even if it's not spelled out the same way that that of an elder is, we see that this is important work. And all of us, deacons, overseers, saints, we would all do better if we placed a higher value on it and appreciated it more. Now, our lesson here this evening has obviously been very focused on this specific word study, but Remember that Jesus came to this world to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. And that means that we have certain responsibilities to him in response. You're here tonight looking around this room. I believe everyone here is already a Christian. But maybe you haven't been living up to those responsibilities. Maybe you haven't been living consistently with someone who did give his life for you. And you need to make changes this evening. If that's the case, if we can help you in any way tonight, Won't you take the opportunity? Come now while we stand and while we sing.